you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me this morning to the Gospel of John. We return to where we left off last week, John chapter 2. John chapter 2. If you're visiting with us, this is, I don't know, I think our fifth, maybe fifth week studying through the Gospel of John, which is our normal practice here at Ascension, to study through books of the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and made it through chapter one after several weeks, dipped our toe into chapter two last week, and now pick up where we left off last week at verse 12 of John chapter two. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab a Bible on the back cart. We have some Bibles available there for you to use, or you can just follow along on the screen. It'll pop up here in just a moment. If you were here last week, we looked at a story of Jesus that took place in a quiet, idyllic scene, right? In a small town at an unknown wedding, the wedding at Cana, Jesus turning water to wine. There Jesus, in in a very unassuming and yet extravagant and absolutely supernatural way, brought joy to the feast and brought rich imagery to what it was that his mission in the world was all about. He is the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God whose blood would bring eternal joy. He is the true bridegroom who will return for his people. That's the scene that we looked at last week. It was a quiet scene. Well, hold on, because today is not a quiet scene. As John continues to record the life of Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord of the feast has become the party crasher. The lamb has become a lion in the most dramatic and public fashion imaginable. And so we're going to pick up John chapter 2, verse 12. It's our tradition here at Ascension out of honor for God's Word for you to stand. And if you would, I invite you to do that. Stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 2, verses, starting at verse 12, reading down through verse 22. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. This is obviously Jesus. And they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons Take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. 
Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now before we get into this specific scene this morning, I want to speak for just a moment about an issue. Maybe some of you are already wondering about this. You see, some of you are thinking, I I remember an event like this, but I don't remember it being at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It seems to me it was at the end of Jesus' ministry, near his death. And if you thought that, it's true. The Synoptic Gospels record another temple cleansing that is near the end of Jesus' ministry, closer to his death. John alone records this one at the beginning. So the question is, are there two of them? Now, some have argued that there aren't two, that there's one temple cleansing, but that that John is more concerned about theology than he is about chronology, and so he has moved up this temple cleansing to fit with the picture and the unfolding of Jesus' life theologically that he wants to speak about. Others argue that there are two temple cleansings, just like there were two feedings of the multitudes by Jesus. Without getting too much into the weeds of figuring this out, there's lots of ink that's been spilled. I I think it's the latter. I really think that there are two temple cleansings and that this is the first of two, at least two, two that are recorded that Jesus performed, we might say. Now there's already precedent for this, as I've said. There's double events, the feeding of the multitude, But the other thing is that do we really think that the Jewish authorities would so easily get it? Do they think that this 30-year-old from Nazareth making a ruckus in the temple and telling them to not do this ever again, that they really would do it? No, the life of Israel, the life of the Jews, our lives is one of forgetfulness and returning to the same old patterns that we have. And so I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that there are two temple cleansing and that this is the first of the two. This is a story about Jesus. It's a story about Jesus's priorities. And his actions are teaching us something about him, but not only about him, but they're also teaching us, I think, and challenging us as well. And that's what I want us to be thinking about as we see Jesus. I want us to see the passion of our Savior, to see his heart. But then I also secondarily want us to be asking the question, am I, as a follower of Jesus, am I passionate about the same things? Am I reflecting the heart that I see so vividly here in John chapter 2? So three descriptions of our Savior as we walk through this passage this morning, John chapter 2, and the first one is this, Jesus is passionate for the Father's worship. That's the first truth. Jesus is passionate for the Father's worship. There's no doubt that this is a shocking scene. We ask, is this the same man 
at that same wedding just a few days earlier? Is this the Jesus who describes himself as one who is gentle and lowly in heart? Is this the Jesus who instructs his disciples to turn the other cheek? What is going on here? The first question to ask is, is this rage? Did Jesus just fly off the handle? Absolutely not. Because rage would imply and suggest uncontrollable anger, which is not possible for the Son of God. So what is happening here? What's happening here is righteous indignation. Jesus is passionate for the Father's worship. Now, This kind of passion isn't very popular these days, is it? Particularly when it comes to religion, to religious zeal, to get upset, to put your foot down upon truth with conviction, these days can be intolerant. It can be unloving. And while we certainly would say, and the Scriptures teach, that there is a zeal without knowledge that is evil, Jesus models for us here in John chapter 2 a zeal that is appropriate, not just appropriate, but is necessary to defend the things that the Father loves, namely, firstly, His worship. Let's take a step back and just look at the scene again. Jerusalem at this time was bursting and bustling. The Passover was at hand. The Passover was one of the most significant feasts. It was one of three pilgrim feasts that brought travelers from all over the provinces surrounding Jerusalem to Jerusalem. And the city would swell from something like 80,000 people to 300,000 to half a million people. And at the center of the celebration of the Passover was what was at the center of Jewish life, the symbol of their national and religious identity, the temple. Now we've talked already about the tabernacle, right? Uh, The tent of meeting that Yahweh instructed Moses to build as his people wandered through the wilderness. But here we are generations upon generations later. Solomon, God's king, had built a temple, had built a beautiful structure for God's worship and God's presence. That structure was decimated and destroyed by the Babylonians. And then, as we studied recently in the book of Zechariah, a new one had been built by Zerubbabel. Oh, it didn't match Solomon's grandeur, but nonetheless, it had been rebuilt, and it was recently being renovated although the renovations weren't yet complete, by Herod. And so here is the temple, the temple in Jerusalem, the house of worship, the place of sacrifice. But when Jesus comes to the temple, what he finds there is an absolute mockery. Sellers and businessmen had set up shop in the temple courts, turning the temple complex into a bustling market as they provided services for travelers from far away. You see, some of these folks had come from these provinces. They wouldn't come with the animals to sacrifice. They would just pick up those animals. They would buy those sacrificial animals on the way or in the temple in this case. They also needed to convert their currency into the local 
currency for the payment of the temple tax. We'll get to that in just a moment. Both of these needs could now apparently be met right here in the place of worship. Now, I doubt that these men were in the top tier of the Better Business Bureau in terms of their business practices, but John doesn't make that commentary, at least not explicitly. We'll get to that in a moment as well. He first just mentions where they are. You see, there actually is history of these businessmen providing a convenience for travelers of them being on the slopes of the Mount of Olives outside of the city. But now the temple officials had allowed for matters of convenience, and certainly a prophet had allowed them to move onto the temple grounds. Here, where the place of God dwells, where the glory of God dwells, The God who is constantly attended with the words holy, holy, holy. Where is that holiness? Where is that majesty? Where is that glory, all that were part of the heavenly temple to be reflected here in the earthly place? And so Jesus, fueled by a passion for his Father's name and worship, for the purity of that worship, he violently overturns their businesses. The commentator D.A. Carson notes that Jesus was forceful but not cruel. I think that's important to note. Jesus is not out for blood. He is focused on restoring worship. And he does that forcefully. He drives everyone out. He flips their tables over. And with an authority that they didn't know he had, he tells them to get out and to leave. Now make no mistake, this was a denunciation of impure worship. It was a denunciation of sacrificing the heart of worship for convenience, ultimately losing all sense of who they were there to worship. The prophet Malachi said this was coming. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 says this, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. And as the disciples watched this scene unfold, they remembered in their knowledge of the Old Testament Scriptures, they remembered Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. And through these actions, Jesus reveals himself to again be the long-awaited Messiah, the one who will restore right worship no matter what it takes. Jesus is passionate for the worship of the Father. But this ought to challenge our worship as well, I think. I mean, what words would describe our priorities in modern worship? Convenience, comfort, casual, fun, entertainment, relevance, 
emotionalism, the need to be epic. I'm not saying that any of those things, I'm not saying that those things can't be in some way present. Those are not bad things in and of themselves. But I am saying that I think Jesus reminds us here, the Holy Spirit reminds us here through his word, that the overarching principle of our worship ought to be what we read in our call to worship this morning from Hebrews 12. Reverence and awe. This doesn't mean old-fashioned. This doesn't mean dry or boring. But it does mean otherworldly. It does mean transcendent. Even as we worship and adore an imminent God who is here with us who has become one of us in Jesus. It's a reminder for us not to be lazy in our worship. But there's more that Jesus is after than just his Father's honor. He was also concerned, I think, about the heart of the worshiper, and that's the second thing I want you to see. Jesus is passionate for his people. Jesus is passionate, not just for the Father's worship, but Jesus is passionate for his people. Think about the things that you'll do for your people. Dads, think about the things you'll do for your wives, for your children. Moms, think about what you'll do for your children. Think about what you'll do for a sibling. Ann and I were recently stranded in Atlanta, and I had my eye as our flight kept getting canceled and, or pushed back and pushed back, and then was finally canceled, and then we sent to a hotel that looked pretty sketch, and there was a line out the door, and it was 11.15 at night, and I kept looking at this one dad who had a toddler and a pregnant wife, and just as the night progressed, he got more and more outspoken and livid. And I didn't blame him one bit. These actions of Jesus were also a statement against the disruption for those he came to serve, to those he came to save, and in this case, specifically for the Gentiles. These merchants, you see, they had set up shop in the court of the Gentiles, in the place where the Gentiles, the only place where the Gentiles, those who were not Jews, were permitted to worship. That's where these merchants were setting up shop. Good luck trying to focus your heart. (laughs) Good luck trying to be still. Good luck trying to pray while the bleeding of sheep and the flutter of birds' wings and the wrangling of coins was in the air. You see, not only was this a disgrace to God's holiness, but this was blatantly marginalizing an entire segment of God's people, and Jesus wouldn't have it. John, after telling us broadly in verse 15 that Jesus began to drive out those who were buying and selling, he tells us some specifics. First, he talks about the money changers. The money changers. If you have ever been to a foreign nation, unless you're one who just learns everything about what's going on and you know all of the currency and its names and what it looks like, 
you've been in that uncomfortable situation of being in another country and kind of having a handful of coins and something you want to buy and you kind of just put it out there and say, take what you need because I don't know what this requires. You see, the situation in the temple would have been in some ways similar. In those days, only Jewish coin was accepted to pay the temple tax that was required in Exodus 30. And so those who came with anything different had to exchange it for the right coinage. And this provided an opportunity for the shrewd businessmen to make some profit. Well, our exchange rate just went up because you've come from so far. And Jesus would have no part of it. And then there were those, he overturns the tables of those selling pigeons. Tells them, or excuse me, he overturns the tables of the money changers. He tells those who are selling pigeons to get out. And the scriptures tell us that pigeons were the offerings for those who didn't have enough money for sheep or cattle. Leviticus 12.8 reads, if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. You see, Jesus hates, He hates the exploitation of those who don't have the power to help themselves. And Jesus' identification with the poor is nothing new. We'll see it throughout His life. It will characterize His life, even when His own family presented Him at the temple when He was a young boy. Luke tells us that the offering that His parents brought was a pair of doves. Not cattle, not sheep, but a pair of doves. How dare these be taken advantage of for the convenience and profit of others. And of course, this true is a truth for us today. The Lord Jesus is still concerned about those who can't help themselves. He commissioned his church to carry out that passion that he has modeled here. James 1:27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And so one of the challenges for us, one of the takeaways for us is are we willing to stand up for them? How? Are we willing to be inconvenienced for them? How? Are we willing to sacrifice for them? How? Jesus has a passion for His people. And then finally, one more truth we got to rush through this morning, and it's this. Jesus is passionate for the Father's will. This passage shows us that Jesus is passionate for the Father's will. It's real interesting to me that, that what Jesus does here in the temple, it, doesn't, it isn't enough to cause him to get arrested immediately. You notice that? But the temple authorities, who I'm assuming that these Jews are who get in his face, they want to know who gave you the right to do this. Verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Right? We are the ones who regulate what goes on in the temple. What makes you think you can regulate what goes on in the temple? You think you have more authority than us? We don't even know who you are. 
And their question reveals their absolute blindness to, number one, the atrocities that are going on in the temple. They are so blind, they don't see how this is all, being, how, how this is all affecting the worshipers, how it's affecting the honor of God. But secondly, they don't realize, they don't have a clue who they're talking to. They know he's not a lunatic. They know he's not demon-possessed, or they would have arrested him already. So you wonder what their perception of Jesus is at this point. Well, Jesus just confuses them even further. And he says words that will later be used against him when charges are brought, although they will be twisted to be used against him. Now, John has already used metaphorical language. We've talked about it in chapter 1 already. He will continue to do this throughout the gospel, right? The Word is a person, the person of Jesus. The light is a person, the person of Jesus. The Lamb is a person, the person of Jesus. And now Jesus uses it with the temple, of author- temple authorities Essentially, he is saying, as John explains in verses 21 and 22, the temple is a person. I am the temple, is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I have come to be obedient to the will of the Father, to be destroyed in death, that I might be raised to life on the third day, that my people might dwell with me, through me, for all eternity. And so there will come a day very soon where no building will be required, where no more sacrifices will need to be made, where no more will a priest need to be relied upon. In me, Jesus says, you will have everything that you need. The temple authorities, they didn't get this. They were confused. But John fast forwards to the end of Jesus' life, beyond the end, to his resurrection, when everything clicks for the disciples. And all things Jesus said, when they were confused themselves, now suddenly make sense. Jesus' passion for the will of the Father. Brothers and sisters, that's the good news that Jesus was stating. The God who has come for his people. The God who has worked this plan of redemption for our good and for his glory. Jesus is passionate for the Father's will. John chapter 2, I think that's what Jesus is proclaiming to us. The passion of Jesus. The intense, white-hot passion for his Father's worship. For his people that he came to save. And for his Father's will. Thanks be to God for the passion of the Savior. While we can never, ever match it, we don't have to. But may we have the grace to reflect it in some way in our passions. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this account through your servant, the Apostle John. We thank you for what it 
reveals to us, what it unveils for us concerning the heart of our Savior, the one who indeed is gentle and lowly in heart, yet the one who does not wink at sin or injustice and sweep it under the carpet, but for righteousness' sake, defends the Father's honor, defends those whom He loves and has come to save, and defends the work that He has accomplished. Oh, Father, we sit here as recipients of that amazing love, desiring to be reflections of that amazing passion. Oh, Holy Spirit, work in us, we ask, that which is pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.